Mr. Rodriguez used his enormous power and wealth to bribe police officers and judges and was even alleged to have financed many political campaigns. He was also considered to have contributed greatly to the demise of his archenemy, the former leader of the Medellin cartel, Pablo Escobar. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Back Chat with James Ockenden and me, Jim Gould. And on Back Chat uh, this morning, uh, we're talking about uh, Queen Elizabeth II's Platinum Jubilee. That is, as she marks uh, 70 years as British monarch and head of the Commonwealth. And we'll be getting an Australian perspective as well, with the country having uh, recently elected uh, a new Republican-leaning uh, Prime Minister. We have uh, two guests with us from Down Under to talk about this uh, on the line. We have uh, Nicholas Tam, an international spokesman and a life member of the Australian Monarchist League. And also Giselle Bastin, Associate Professor of English at Flinders University in Adelaide. Um, good morning to you both. Uh, perhaps uh, um, Nicholas Tam first. Uh, good morning to you. Good morning. Uh, great, thanks for joining us. So, in UK is having a, a, a four-day holiday weekend coming up. Uh, street parties, parades, all kinds of things going on. Uh, a big pageant on Sunday. A fly pass by the RAF, all to mark the the Queen's uh, seventy years uh, since uh, since she became uh, monarch and head of the Commonwealth. So, w w what's happening down there? What's going to be going on in, in Australia over the weekend? Well, first of all, it's an extraordinary occasion that I think is going to inspire a lot of excitement and joy, uh, not just in the UK, but right across uh, the Commonwealth. It's an occasion that, that we've never seen happen before in Commonwealth or, or British history for uh, any monarch to have a Platinum Jubilee celebrating mm -hmm. 70 years on the throne. Mm -hmm. I think in terms of official events in uh, Australia, there will be, uh, I know, a number of very important ceremonies in Canberra where Aspen Island in uh, Lake Burley Griffin is being renamed as Queen Elizabeth II Island and there's a new set of gardens being set up that will be dedicated in Her Majesty's honour and in, in the other capital cities as well. Uh, I understand Sydney is putting on a light show this weekend where uh, a number of uh, major public buildings, including you know the Opera House and the Harbour Bridge and so on, will be all lit up in purple to mark the occasion. So I think uh, across Australia and across the Commonwealth, uh, people will be celebrating in their their own way, and I'm sure people will enjoy the occasion. What's the What's the feeling about the monarchy in Australia? Your website is very pro monarchy. It, it makes me wonder if there's actually sort of a more anti side. What's the sort of divide at the moment? Well, there's overwhelming support for the monarchy in Australia. We had a referendum, obviously about 20 years ago, where the monarchy won every single state with 72% of electorates, which is a landslide victory by anyone's definition. Uh, we've never had uh, any, any party or any government win an election uh, and take that many seats in the parliament, which I think shows the, uh, uh, the extent of respect and popularity for the institution. Now, obviously, people, you know, ask about opinion polls and so on from time to time. And if you look at the most recent uh, opinion polling, uh, what, what's really interesting is that uh, we've actually seen a, a drop in support for the idea, the vague idea of a republic since that referendum. Uh, if you ask people, you know, whether they want to move to a republic, you get about 36% of people saying yes to that question. 
And if you drill down further into the demographic breakdown, you find that uh, it's even weaker amongst uh, the younger demographic. If you look at the 18 to 24 category, uh, the support drops from 36 to about 26%. So uh, the stereotype that uh, young people might be less inclined to support the monarchy really doesn't stack up when you, you look at the data. Mm. Uh, Giselle Bastin, good morning to you. Good morning. Thanks, thanks very much for joining us. Um, as we mentioned a little bit uh, earlier, uh, you have a new Prime Minister in Australia, uh, Anthony Albanese, uh, who has a, a Republican views. Um, um, how much do you think that is likely to uh, affect the role and the status uh, of the monarchy and the Queen as head of state? I mean, do you think there will be any moves uh, down the line to change the status quo at all? Well, certainly the new Prime Minister has started the conversation about change by appointing an assistant minister for the Republic only yesterday, uh, a, a man called Matt Sizzleplate. And I think it's a new portfolio, and so that would suggest that they're keen, the new government is keen to put the conversation back into circulation. But I don't think anything will necessarily happen in what uh, certainly Prime Minister Anthony Albanese is hoping will be his first term. Uh, he will certainly be aiming for a second term. But I think they've, they've already indicated that they're not going to do anything too much in the immediate future because their focus is on the Indigenous Voices to Parliament yeah. um, shift in the Constitution. So it certainly will be there because they have to honour their public statements as having been in support of a republic uh, when they're in office. So, yes, mm. it's, it's happening, mm. but slowly. Mm. And uh, do you go along with uh, what uh, Nicholas Tam was saying about uh, the opinions of the majority of Australians, or, or, or have you seen have you seen a, a shift in opinions uh, over the years, uh, uh, attitudes towards uh, the the Queen Elizabeth and having the Queen Elizabeth as head of state? Uh, well, yeah, there's, there's I, I I can see to a certain degree uh, what um, he's suggesting, but there are many polls. And they do tend to suggest different things to what um, Nicholas was saying. Uh, I would, my impression, uh, just being in the, the field of uh, royal scholarship and therefore in many conversations about this, uh, it's not so much that there's overwhelming support for the monarchy in Australia, so much as people are fairly cheerful with the uh, with the. Um, the state of play as it is and, and if anything a bit indifferent to the notion of changing. There are certainly very, very mm. excited uh, pro-Republicans and also very excited pro-Monarchists. But in the main Australian people are, have other things on their minds mm. Uh, mm. whether or not we are a republic or not I think. Well, Giselle, you, you've written a fascinating study of, uh, of TV biopics, which I actually tried to buy last night, but uh, Wiley makes it very difficult to, <laughs> to access. But um, you talk about Princess Diana and Prince Charles, how they went from fairy tale romance to a royal soap opera, uh, looking sort of very much through the TV lens. Where does Queen Elizabeth II sit in that sort of 
style is she is she sort of the romantic or is she the soap opera now in australia <laughs> i think she's the highly respected uh the, the highly respected lead player if right. i can put it that way because certainly with um with more recent productions such as the queen that came out in 2006 and now of course the netflix the crown, the crown yeah. uh, we are seeing extend, extended studies of the queen on screen for the first time and it's, it's brought her to a whole new audience and to people wanting to understand who is this fascinating woman who has made such a steady course over 70 years on the throne so I think she's now the leading lady uh, she is the story uh, as opposed to perhaps the 1990s, where the focus is on the celebrity culture of Diana. Mm. Uh, the Queen is back for, you know, forefront and centre, I think, of the royal narratives and public imaginings about her. Yeah, Nicholas Tam, yes, the, the royal family uh, has been uh, involved in a lot of... Um if you like, uh, uh, negative publicity in recent years. So what has that done for the, the status, the standing of uh, Queen Elizabeth herself? Well, I think what's uh, notable about Queen Elizabeth is regardless of whether people are particularly uh, Republican or monarchist or otherwise, it's very difficult to find anybody who will say anything negative or, or critical about the Queen herself because I think she's conducted herself and discharged her duties as sovereign over uh, the 15 different Commonwealth realms where uh, she reigns as queen with uh, uh, great dignity and, and gravitas. And I think people genuinely respect that. Now, of course, um, you know, there's been lots of media coverage about other members of the royal family and perhaps there's uh, lesser enthusiasm or perhaps a little less respect for those who've gotten themselves into trouble over the years. But I don't think people extrapolate from those uh, individual stories to... Uh, take a, a more negative view of the Queen. I think uh, what most people would acknowledge is that uh, the Queen has done a great job and there's largely widespread, if not universal, respect or appreciation for uh, what she's done. Yeah, well, perhaps how she's handled some of those crises has actually elevated her, you know, the respect as well. And uh, I mean, Giselle, you were, you were also the royal expert on, on TV for uh, Harry and Meghan's wedding. Did you have any predictions for the, the Platinum Jubilee at that time? And did anyone foresee, you know, perhaps the mess that Harry and Meghan have made of their relationship with the, with the royal supporters? No, uh, it's quite the opposite. I was, uh, I think, by many people, so struck by the optimism in May of 2018 when these two people from, you know, such different backgrounds and cultures uh, got together. It seemed like a time of enormous hope and joy for many and uh, i don't think anybody could have foreseen uh, the way it has turned out however i did predict at the time that the narratives about uh, megan the duchess of sussex in particular would definitely change and swing and there would be a backlash for the simple reason that uh, the royal narrative has always tended to follow the you know the good egg bad egg Mm. style and so we have the Duchess of Cambridge who's enormously popular and respected and so of course it was going to have to be Diana and Fergie all over again you know one gets it wrong the other one gets it right so I can see how that was, well I knew that that was going to pan out but nonetheless I still thought the story would remain a much more positive one and I'm sure mm. 
the Queen did as well. Mm. She must be very disappointed yeah. at mm. the way things have turned out. So there's clearly a great deal of respect uh, for the Queen uh, herself, uh, but she is 96, uh, she's not going to be around forever. Uh, how would the public feel about uh, King Charles, uh, Giselle? Hello? In Australia? Yes. Uh, I think people are much less interested in him mm. uh, as an individual. They, uh, he's been... Uh, very much uh, uh, in front of us for, for many decades, but many people feel as if they don't quite understand Charles, or he doesn't seem to have the star factor that his mother has, and perhaps his uh, elder son has. So many Australians, uh, many people have said to me, oh, I think Prince William should take over after the Queen. Mm. And I try and explain patiently that it doesn't really quite work that way. We don't just get the person that we like. And, it's actually uh, a role that is inherited, mm -hmm. right. and uh, I can't imagine that changing. Yeah. The Queen's been to Australia, obviously, quite a few times, like 16 times, I believe. How about Prince Charles? Has he actually made it over there a fair, fair number of times? Oh, yes, many, many yeah, times. Yeah. I can't think of it's not a case if he's not those. present. Uh, yeah. No, no, he's been here a lot. Okay. And he went to school here. Yeah. He's actually lived here. Yeah, mm. and and he spent uh, he spent some time on a sheep station as a as a young guy. I seem to recall. That's right. right. Yeah, yeah, you have to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> you have to do a yeah. sheep station. Yeah. Yeah. And yes, so no, he's um, um, he's very warmly received by by many. But again, I think in the in the, the gallery of you know superstars within the royal family, there are some individuals who just seem to appeal to the public more than others. Mm -hmm. And uh, the Queen, uh, as we have established in our conversation today, is, is the one who seems to really come across as the most unblemished. Mm. Good so, question. So, 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 yeah, so what do you think, uh, Nicholas Tam? So would, would the Australian public take to uh, Charles in the same way? And if not, you know, might, might that cause a, a problem for the, you know, for the, for the role of the monarch? And uh, what do you think? I think there's no doubt that the Queen will be an extraordinarily mm. tough mm. act to follow for anyone. I mean, mm. we're talking about a monarch who's the first to celebrate a platinum jubilee, who's had something like 170 prime ministers serve in her name, and who, who herself is actually a, a veteran of the Second World War and has overseen at such a, a long period of historical development and change. But uh, it's a very tough act to fill, and I think it's in some ways similar to uh, the passing of Queen Victoria, obviously, Edward VII had to follow and uh, had a relatively, you know, short reign after that. And probably not too many people uh, remember the years after Victoria all that well. I think that's inevitable when you have such a, a long-standing monarch serve for so long. But uh, ultimately, I think Prince Charles will do the job in his own way. And I think as he gains more prominence, and I think we're starting to see that now with him, taking over more and more of the public royal duties that uh, the Queen uh, is responsible for, more of those being handed to him. I think he will probably come to more prominence and people will get a better sense of who he is and an appreciation of uh, his achievements. He's someone who uh, will have his own style, but in his own way, he's made a tremendous contribution to uh, the Commonwealth, uh, you know, discharging not only royal duties, but initiatives like the Prince's Trust, which he started with his... I think £7,000 of severance pay from the Royal Navy in 
the 1970s. Now that's a, a charity that uh, you know works with disadvantaged youth and helps uh, hundreds of thousands of people across the Commonwealth a year. And I think some have valued the the value of those activities in you know the hundreds of millions of pounds per annum. So there's probably a lot I think that Prince Charles has done that may not be as widely recognised or have earned the credit that he necessarily deserves. But I think over time, people will be curious to see uh, who he is and how he's going to approach um, the job of being monarch at some stage when the time comes. Yeah. He's actually a sheep farmer as well in the UK now, so perhaps he'll bring that back. As a, you know, back to Australia, that could be a way in. <laughs> For Nicholas, Nicholas, I've got. I've just been reading this book, uh, The Invention of Tradition, which I'm sure you, you're probably aware of, and it's fascinating how the royal sort of pomp and circumstance all came about. Um, at this sort of the end of the uh, 19th century, and jubilees in particular were sort of invented to put on this bombastic show while colonial power might have been on the wane, uh, not just in Britain but you know across a lot of European countries. And we had the music of Elgin and Parry and choirs and, and horses and whatnot. It, do you think that the time for jubilee might be over though it's not really that popular with uh, the the idea of spending all that money on these huge parties is is perhaps on the wane i don't think the reaction coming this weekend really reflects that mm. you've got you've got a four-day public holiday obviously in the uk and other other realms approaching it in their own way but i think generally if you look at you know the photos of places whether it's the light show in Sydney that's being planned or the street parties in um, the UK, the Jubilee lunches on, on Sunday. I think there's a lot of enthusiasm for those particular events because it is such a, a rare milestone. We've never had a platinum Jubilee and uh, who knows, in five years we might have to find another precious stone or, or lustrous medal to name a 75-year Jubilee after. I did, I did try and look to see if there was one that correlates with 75 years and I, I haven't seemed to be able to find an answer so they may have to you know figure that out we'll have to invent see. one yeah but i think coming back <laughs> to the earlier point about um, you know jubilee and the pageantry and ceremony i think that dates back you know over a century back into the 19th century when you would say that uh you know probably colonial power was yet to be on the way that it was it was something that was done to uh, arouse public interest uh, in the institution. So I think people do enjoy uh, these public events. And if you look at the, the economic situation, um, now obviously you get some people who want to be critical and carp about cost, but uh, these, these things typically generate pretty significant economic benefits, not just for, for tourism or, or general well-being and satisfaction people draw from them, but also in terms of the, the free advertising and publicity that's uh, they generate in the media. When when the Queen or a member of the royal family goes somewhere, the media are there and they report it. Um, and that's why I think Brand, Brand Britain has valued uh, the monarchy as an institution as generating something like more than a billion dollars worth of free publicity or something of that nature. And there's very there's similar commentary if you go to, to Canada or New Zealand or Australia, whenever there is a royal visit, uh, you know, people do point out that it does attract a lot of international attention. So in the round, I don't know if this really is a burden on the public purse, so to speak. There are a lot of 
indirect economic benefits as well. Yeah, you've got a lot of info on this on, on your website, which is very interesting. A lot of stuff I didn't know. And it, actually, it seems like the TV shows uh, such as The Crown don't really get into the finance side and, you know, show that perhaps The Crown is you know, supporting the, the nation a, a bit, bit more than the general view. Do you think, Giselle, there's, there's a, do you think there's a plot line there? Accountant. Yeah. I don't know. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Spin off. <laughs> Not sure, but. Uh, but it is. It is the view uh, in the in the UK very much that uh, that the, the the Queen costs money, which I think is something that Nicholas is is very keen to uh, and correctly, you know, puts right um, in in some of his work. Is that in fact the Crown Estate generates revenue, but but it's not widely known. Do, do you know why that would be? Because it's, it's a narrative that not everybody wants to promote, but uh, I think there's, it is quite solidly established that um, the royals do generate enormous income uh, for the UK and for the other you know, SRAs into other parts of the world. It's uh, you know they they move copy, they they are news, and so uh, and, and with that goes goes cash and the. Queen has been very careful to show that she's she's uh, quite um, economically minded when it comes to spending money from the public purse. And there's been increased measures to take uh, you know, people off what used to be known as the civil list, mm. now referred to as the sovereign grant. And and she does see she has um, been careful to make sure that uh, if, for example she's having to pay lots of money for things such as perhaps Prince Andrew's mm. uh, court settlement, uh, that she does it from her private funds. So, uh, yes, they cost a lot, but they also generate a lot of money. Mm. Now, in Hong Kong, I mean, the crown, we can say, is sort of inalienable part of, of whatever the Commonwealth, but in Hong Kong, the crown was removed from the law very simply. In fact, there's a reunification ordinance that simply says any reference to the crown or the queen now references Hong Kong government. So, I mean, it can just be taken, taken out by that. Could, could that happen in Australia? Is it as easy as that to remove the monarchy? Nicholas? Uh, you're asking me? Um, uh, perhaps Nicholas? Uh, well, I think the, the short answer is uh, no, because we have uh, a very clear uh, constitutional provision that if you wanted to change the constitution to remove the monarchy, you would need to have a referendum. So that would be a national vote and you would need to win a majority of the population. And you'd also need a majority of the six states. Uh, so it's not as simple as a, a simple stroke of the pen like it was in uh, Hong Kong, where you could just, you know, pass a bill and, you know, basically, you know, control F, replace all. It's a, a much more involved and complicated exercise. But it's also one that I think raises wider questions about the structure of government and the division of executive power, how that's regulated, how the reserve powers are, are allocated, what those are, when those should be exercised. There's a lot of more complex questions that would have to be asked in the context of the Australian Constitution. And mm. If that's something that were to happen in the future, those are very challenging questions that uh, any Republican lobbyist would, would have to grapple with. So I think it's a much more involved, uh, detailed process than some might uh, appreciate. Mm. So I, I think it would take a long time for any of that uh, to actually be resolved if that is in fact something that 
the government wants to do, and I don't think that's going to happen in the immediate future. Mm -hmm. Would that have to be a, a simple majority in a referendum, or, or a 60-40 proportion, or would it depend on the number of people who actually uh, took part in the vote? Or how would it work? Uh, well, it, it would simply be, uh, you know, more than 50% of the people who vote. Now, we have compulsory voting in Australia, so we always have about 90% or so turnout in, a, in an election or a referendum. So, yeah, just a simple 50% of the population and four out of the six uh, states. Mm -hmm. But such a, a referendum is not, uh, not on the cards for the foreseeable future anyway, by the sound of it. Well, I think, I think the government has said that the new government, that uh, it's not something they want to do in a first term. Now, yeah. whether, whether they do that at, you know, a second or third term, depending on what happens at future elections, I guess we have to wait and see. But I think in the immediate future, it's not really on the agenda. And there's, there's no real, you know, groundswell demanding this urgently be considered. I think people are relatively content with the current arrangements. Okay. All right. Well, thank you very much to, to both of you for joining us on Back Chat this morning. That was Nicholas Tam, uh, international spokesman and a life member of the Australian Monarchist League, and also uh, Giselle Bastin, uh, associate professor of English at Flinders University in Adelaide. Um, a couple of uh, emails uh, just on the subject uh, of the royal family and the Queen. Uh, S writes, uh, uh, the royal family in Britain adds a lot of value to the nation and the Commonwealth. Uh, uh, they were not there by choice. They have to grow up in very different circumstances compared to ordinary people. They have a lot of duties to perform, and this keeps politics at bay. And Vic writes, uh, congratulations and felicitations to the Queen on her milestone. It would be great if, on her birthday, she's humble enough to apologise to all the British colonies for the atrocities the British Empire brought upon its colonial subjects. Uh, well, there you are. Thank you for, uh, for that, uh, Vic. Obviously, the history of the British uh, Empire is tied up with uh, a lot of uh, controversy, to say the least. Um, thanks for writing in. Um, actually, one other email. Uh, OK, this one... Uh, on a subject we were talking about uh, yesterday, or in, well, in fact relates to uh, COVID-19 and quarantine requirements. Uh, so this from uh, uh, George says, uh, uh, seems we commoners all need to follow the rules. I just did my seven-day hotel quarantine after travelling to the US and Europe on business. In yesterday's Financial Times, there was a pleasant article on how eight HKSAR officials travelling to promote Hong Kong's financial industry and market did not need to quarantine upon their return. Why not? I can guarantee they were probably in the same uh, countries I visited. This is more than a slap in the face uh, shown to and shown the total double standards. Uh, on show to us all. That from George. Thank you. Um, thanks very much to all of our listeners. Um, and thanks very much to you, James. And thanks, see you again Jim. soon. Okay. See you soon. And a uh, quick look at the weather before we go to the new summary and morning brew. Uh, mainly cloudy with a few showers, hot with sunny intervals during the day. Top temperature in the urban areas around 31 degrees. Uh, the outlook. Uh, it's going to be uh, persistently hot with sunny periods and a few showers on the Toon Ung Festival. That's Dragon Boat Day on uh, tomorrow and over the weekend and unsettled in the following few days. It's currently 29 degrees, humidity 77%. For a safe and healthy living environment, owners should not alter the drainage systems of buildings on their own. 
they must ensure proper maintenance of drainage pipes and should appoint qualified professionals or contractors for regular inspection and arrange early repair if seepage or defects are found. They may apply for loans or subsidies from the Buildings Department and the Urban Renewal Authority. Visit bd.gov.hk for details.